reading this morning from Psalm 142. David writes, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. Look and see, there is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 142, as Dan read. The title of that psalm tells us that it's a psalm that David wrote as a prayer while he was in the cave. And through the content of the psalm, most believe that that's the cave of Adullam that David was in when he was fleeing from King Saul because King Saul was trying to take his life. If you remember the situation, David had defeated Goliath and he'd become a, a hero throughout Israel because of what he'd done. Saul eventually made him a commander over one of his armies, and again, he was just being praised uh, throughout the nation. And what we know of Saul is he was an insecure guy, a man who was prone to jealousy. And when he heard David being praised as he was, he became jealous, and eventually that led to the point that he wanted David's life to be taken and became very direct about trying to take David's life to the point that eventually David had to flee and ends up in this cave. So here's the situation. David goes from being the hero in Israel, praised by everybody, from being the person who's a commander of an army and a very successful commander. He is the husband of Michael, King Saul's daughter, who loved him dearly. He is the best friend of Jonathan, King Saul's son. He is a man that anyone in Israel would have looked at and said, this is a man who's been blessed by God. I mean, God's blessing is all over this guy. To in a very short time, he goes from that to he's sitting in this cave. Here's a, here's a picture of a cave in that area that kind of gives you an idea of what the area was like. Deep, rugged caverns, very isolated place. David's in a cave probably similar to this all alone. He goes from that height to this low place to incredible aloneness out here wondering what he's going to do to even save his life. You've got to imagine David sitting in that place all by himself, finally stopping for a moment from running. His mind has to be running with the question, why? Why? I've tried to do the right thing. I've, I, I've tried to serve Saul the best I could. I've served God the best I can. Why now am I in this situation? What in the world has happened? And then he describes in this prayer what he's feeling. He, he lets God know, here's what's going on inside of me. He says the spirit, that my spirit has grown faint within me. He seems to be depressed, maybe even on the edge of despair. 
which is easy to understand. He says, when I look ahead, and you know in that situation, you're looking for what do I do? Where do I go? What's the way out of this? And he says, everywhere I look, the path just seems to have snares hidden ahead. There are traps waiting for me. And he says he feels so trapped that he feels like he's in prison. And then David also describes how lonely he feels. He says, look and see. There's no one at my right hand. And and to the right is where in that culture, you know, your most trusted person would be. He says, I look to the right and there's nobody there. He says, no one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. I have no safe person or no safe place to go. And then he says, no one cares for my life. David's at a low point. This is a hard place he's at, incredibly alone. And I imagine David has never probably in his life experienced this kind of aloneness. I mean, he's surely he's been out in the fields many times as a shepherd where he's been alone at night with just the sheep. But you know how it is when you're alone, but you know that aloneness is a choice. You know when you want to, you can leave it, walk away from it, and there'll be somebody there waiting for you. You know if you reach out in need, somebody will reach back to care for you. That's a different kind of aloneness, right? We all like some alone times. We all enjoy those, but we enjoy them when we know it's a choice. When we know any time we want, we can leave it and be back with people who care about us. David right now is in a place where he's not sure that's true. He feels deeply, deeply alone. Mother Teresa, a woman who has witnessed some of the worst poverty in the world, she once wrote that actually the worst poverty she ever witnessed was the most, what she described as the most terrible poverty was loneliness and feeling alone that all the material poverty she experienced, the worst she's seen is when someone was truly alone. That is a horrible poverty that is devastating to try and live with. I recently read an article in the New Yorker magazine on the history of loneliness. It was interesting. The author said that, you know, really in the past, almost no one lived alone. It just didn't happen because you really couldn't survive alone. You needed other people close by just for your survival. Uh, And really, she said before about the 1800s, you almost never in the English language even read the word loneliness. just almost doesn't occur in writings because it was a very, very uncommon experience. We were always with people. Someone was always close by. Uh, But that's changed. Today, we live in a world where we have access to people constantly, right? Through all the different means that we have available to us, we always have access to somebody. And people... Unbelievable numbers of people have access to us constantly. There's always people before us in some way. It's a different time. And yet, even recently, uh, since about 1960, they say there's been this incredible swing in people living alone. Before 1960, they said it was actually uncommon in any city in the world that more than 10% of the people there were single-person households. Since 1960, they said there's been a huge swing in that, big change. If you go to Stockholm today, they said about 60% of people live in single-person households. Uh, In London, about 58%. Berlin, about 50%. If you look at all the households in the United States, not just cities, but all the households, about 30% of the households in the United States are single-person households. We've changed. One, because we can. It's possible to do. But I also wonder if more and more we're not living alone because, because we want kind of the 
the control, the safety of living alone in a world where so many have access to us. We want to know there's a place we can escape to, that we decide who has access to us and we can breathe sometimes and choose aloneness. But it's not just times alone or living alone that's grown. It's also the feeling of loneliness that has grown, social scientists tell us. Matter of fact, they say that is growing in unbelievable rates uh, to the point that they say it's actually a public health epidemic, this feeling of loneliness because of the very negative impact it has upon our mental health and our physical health. Matter of fact, in some places in the world, they are trying as a governments to deal with it. In England, they have actually appointed a minister of loneliness. His only job is to address this epidemic of loneliness in their culture. And they say in Europe, many other countries are considering doing the same thing. Germany right now is looking into appointing a minister of loneliness also. It's a problem. It affects us. Um, and I don't think it just affects us because we're living alone more. Because you know how it is. Sometimes you can be around a lot of people, have people very near you, and those will be the times you feel most alone, right? When you're with somebody, but you feel like I'm not connected to them. I'm not seen by them. Or if I reach out to them, they wouldn't reach back. That's when loneliness is really the hardest to live with, when we feel it most deeply. In fact, when they study loneliness, it's interesting. In the United States, they say the group that seems to have the highest rates of this feeling of loneliness are young adults, which is strange because in most other developed countries, it's actually people over the age of 60 that seem to be the highest. And they've wondered why in the United States is it young adults that are even worse, experiencing loneliness more often and seem to have access to so many people. One of the things they wonder, if it's not because of the high rates of use of social media in the United States, especially among young adults. Because in a way that we've never been able to do before, we can see when we're not included. We immediately, every moment of the day, get to see that others are doing something without us. Others have a life that seems to be pretty good that we're not experiencing with them. Others are doing things together and no one talked to me. When I was that age, I never knew. People were probably doing things without me all the time. They may have been intentionally doing things without me. I didn't know. There was no one to tell me. Now in a moment, you know when you're being left out or when you're being rejected or when you're forgotten and unseen. Loneliness is at pretty high rates. And again, I think it's not just that we are lonely because we're being left out or we're aware of it more. I think we're also lonely because in an age of so much communication and changes in transportation where people are so accessible to us and we're so accessible to others, we kind of have to protect ourselves, right? You can't be deeply relationally and emotionally available to so many people. just can't do it. So social scientists say we tend to kind of socially cocoon. We try to put up a little cocoon around ourselves to, to say, I just can't, I can't be there for so many people. If I try, I'm just going to disappoint so many. And if I reach out to all these people, they're going to disappoint me because they can't be there for everybody. So we try and find a way to kind of be safe, to not need relationship too much. Maybe just to get little pieces of it that are safer pieces, right? If I can become satisfied with just little relational pieces then I don't risk disappointing them too much and, and I don't have to take the risk of them disappointing me too much. There's a film out 
uh, years ago called Up in the Air. It's a story of where George Clooney plays a man who travels around the world for corporations where he goes in, corporations are downsizing, and he helps them fire people. That's his job. Doesn't sound to me like a very fun job, but that's the man's job is all day long, every day, firing people. But as part of this job, he travels constantly. He lives on planes and in airports and at hotels. And he gets to the point that he defends this as a good lifestyle. He wants to say, this is actually, you know, too many relationships are baggage. They're too hard. They are a burden, right? They ask a lot of us. They can disappoint us. They can hurt us. We can disappoint others. And he said, this is better. Let's just live life with what he calls fast friends. Sad, but there is something kind of safe about only depending upon fast friends, getting just enough of that to get by, if we could make that enough. Uh, because, again, it doesn't risk a lot. We're not going to fail them. They're not going to fail us, most likely. Uh, and we do it. We may not do it the way he does it and defend it the way he defends it, but we do it, right? We sometimes try and make, our, make it enough to be satisfied with the likes that you get on social media or, or make it enough that we're with people but not with them, you know, maybe hang out at their favorite coffee shop and we're with people without the, the burden of really being with people. Uh, we have lots of people in our life that we just, we just want little connections, but we don't want much more than that. And I actually think that is okay. I think it is valuable that we have some of these momentary connections or little connections with other human beings, even fast friends. But if that's your whole portfolio of relationship, if that's all of them, I think you will be deeply dissatisfied. And you know when you'll be most deeply dissatisfied? Is when there's real need in your life. And we all have times of real need in our life. In those times, those kind of just little bit of connections... They're definitely not enough. We are made for more than that. And we're made to be more than that to other people. All this to say, I think all of us can kind of relate to what David's going through. I think all of us had times in our life where we know what it is to really need somebody, to really wish others would be there for us, and we're not sure they will be. We feel alone. So this morning, I just want to take the rest of our time for a few moments and and just think through what David is praying in Psalm 142. I hope it will be an encouragement to you in those times that you feel alone. Uh, because again, I think like David, we've all, we've all known this. And what's interesting is where David starts in that point, at that time. Before he goes to looking at the relationships with everybody else, he starts with the most foundational, most important relationship in his life. And I believe it's because if we can't hold on to that one and stand on that one, nothing else will satisfy and be enough. He starts with his relationship with God. He says he passionately and out loud cries to God. With his voice out loud, he is telling God what he's going through. He says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord of mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. Honestly and vulnerably, he tells God what he's feeling and going through. He wants God's mercy. He wants to know God is there for him and God cares. I remember once a friend of mine telling me that he was going through such a difficult period of time with one of his sons. He was in such pain and just felt so desperate for an answer to know that the future held something better for him and for his son. 
He said one night he was in such despair that he actually laid his Bible on the floor in his living room and he stood on top of it and he said, I just screamed out to God, God, please help my son. Please save me. Please rescue him and rescue me from this situation. He said, my wife thought I was a complete nut, you know, as she heard me in the living room out there screaming. I I picture David that way right now. Like he just wants anything to hold on to, to say, God, are you really there? God, do you really care? Do you really hear me? And he yells out from this isolated place. And he tells God that my spirit has grown faint. Again, I, I don't know I have the energy to go on. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure where my hope is going to be found. And he lets God know that. And then he seems to find some affirmation as he's, as he's telling God what he's going through It seems in the midst of being vulnerable with God, he also remembers and is able to hold on to a little bit more what is true of God. He says to him, God, I know you you know my way. I don't know the path ahead. I don't know what, what is the safe way out of this. I don't know where those traps are. But God, I know you know. That right now I'm with someone who sees everything, who knows everything, who understands what's ahead of me, what's before me. And I think he finds some comfort in that. I may not know. God, you may not even be telling me right now. But God, there's some comfort in knowing that you know. Not only does God know what's ahead of him, God knows what's going on inside of him, what he's experiencing. Uh, Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, speaking of Jesus, the writer says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In our time of need, we know that we are reaching out to someone who understands. I believe God's always understood. God, before Jesus came and took on flesh, God understood. He understood what we're going through. But through the gift of God with us, one of the things we have received is we get to We get to see and hear the stories. We get to understand in a way we can hold on to. God really does understand. We have the stories of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We get to see the pain that he experiences. We get to see him reaching out to those who he has loved so well and know that they're not really there for him the way he longs for them to be. We get to see a good friend betray him. We, we get to see all of that happen in his life so we understand that when we reach out to God, we reach out to someone who truly understands and gets what we're going through. I think David in his crying out also remembers he's talking to a God who cares. He's talking to a God who knows what will happen to him and what is happening and what he's going through. He's talking to a God who understands his pain. And then in verse 5, it seems to all kind of come together for him. In verse 5, he proclaims, I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. A refuge is a safe place to hide or a safe person to hide with, a place where we can rest. He says, God, that's you. I know that's you. Matter of fact, in Psalm 57, which is a companion psalm, it talks, it's David speaking in the same cave during the same time. In Psalm 57, David writes this, In you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is past. David gets it. God, you are here. And God, you are strong and you care 
and you want to wrap your wing around me and pull me in close and protect me and take whatever's coming at me away from me by protecting me from it. That's who you are, God. He says, you're my portion in the land of living. And a portion would have been the highest good or the most valuable thing you had. That's what it implied. He says of God, in the land of the living, or another way of saying that would be as long as I live. As long as I live, you are the most valuable relationship in my life. God, you are always there. You always care. You always are there ready to take me under your wing. Then, after remembering who God is and who he's with, then David makes his request. He brings his request to God, and it's a pretty simple request, pretty direct. But I think it's important that David stops and remembers who he's with. He honestly brings his pain before God, his desires before God, his longing and his ache. And he also remembers who he's speaking to. And it takes him a few moments to remember who he's speaking to, the one who's before him. I think that's important because I think sometimes our tendency is to bring our desperate pleas to God so quickly that we don't even remember the God we're speaking to. It's almost like we're desperate and we're just running down a road, knocking on doors, looking for someone to help. And God's just one more door we knock on, and when we don't get a response immediately, we run to the next door. Because we just need something now. If we're going to lay that need before God, and then we're going to entrust him with it and wait on his response, we need to remember who he is. God is not just anyone. He is the God who cares and the God of strength and the God who knows. He is the God who's always watching over us and always will be there for us. And then he brings his request. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. David longs to be free again of this burden. He longs to be back in that place where it's easy to praise God's name because he sees blessing all over him. He wants to return there. He's not there now, but he longs for God to bring him back there and to free him from this burden. And then he ends the psalm with this sentence. He says, then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. I think finally when David is able to take a breath and remember that even though he feels alone, he's not. God is there and the God who's with him cares and the God who's with him can take care of him and the God who's with him knows what's happening. When he's able to stop and remember that, now David's also able to stop and go, you know what, there are others there too. That if I reach out, As a child of God, the saints of God are there for me too. Now, they're there imperfectly. They're there in ways that they'll sometimes fail. They're there in ways that they can only give peace because they're human. They can't give, again, deeply to everybody, but they can give pieces. They're there. They're there to give in part in in limited ways. And sometimes they'll fail. And sometimes they'll disappoint, just like he will them. But they are there. If David stops and remembers, he'll remember that his wife Michael and his best friend Jonathan, they risked everything for him. They risked betraying their father, this powerful man, the king, for his escape, for his safety. And we're told in 1 Samuel 22 that talks about his time in this cave, we're told that very soon David is going to be joined by his brothers and by other family members, and about 400 men are going to join him in in that desolate place. Men who, like him, are in difficult situations, they're going to join him, and they will, they will soon become an army for him and will follow him and will fight with him. 
when David reaches out, when he finally understands, I'm on this foundation that's safe, I'm not alone, now I can risk reaching out to imperfect people because they don't have to be everything for me, right? I think a lot of times the reason we don't reach out is because we know they can't. We know they will disappoint us in some way. They can't be everything for us. And when we try to make people fill that space that only God can fill, we will always be disappointed. They will never be enough. We sometimes, instead of turning to God in those moments, we try and make them enough. We try and make them enough by saying that I'm going to manipulate or demand or pout or do something to get you to come through for me. You have to be enough for me. Try to make them be what they absolutely cannot be. It's not that we can't do more, but we can never be enough. Or we tend to do, most of us tend to in some ways, try and make our desire and our longing push it down enough and numb it enough that what they give is okay. I don't really need anything more. Try and make fast friends good enough for us that will satisfy us. David didn't do either. David looked first to the place that was most important, the space no one else could fill. He looked to God and he remembered who he was and he reached out to him and he asked him to be there for him. And then David also reached out to friends, reached out to God's people to be there for him also, as all of us should be. In a world where people are more and more accessible but less and less available, in a world where people are always in front of us, yet often we still feel like we're alone. I hope you'll remember Psalm 142 and go back to it once in a while when you feel lonely. And remember that God cares, God knows what's happening um, and what will happen, even if we don't. God understands our pain. He wants us to reach out to him, especially when our spirit is faint and the threats feel too big for us. He wants us to reach out. And God will provide a safe place for us in the midst of the chaos. Like David, as children of God, we are truly not alone. It may feel like it, but we're not alone. This psalm reminds us of it. It doesn't mean all the difficult things are going away. It doesn't mean the solutions are all suddenly coming. But I've got to tell you, it is different to walk through it when you're not alone. It is incredibly different when you know you truly are not alone and you're not. As children of God, we are not alone. Even pre-pandemic, people started kind of cocooning. We see that. People are less involved in churches. They're less involved in social clubs, things like Kiwanis and Lions Club and PTAs and all these things. Involvement's going way down. Uh, people are just becoming less and less connected to people. It really is an opportunity for us as the church of God to be people who, again, limited, imperfectly, sometimes with boundaries, to be people who take the risk of being there for others because they need it. We need it. In fact, we are at our best when we do it. It's not just good for them. It brings out the best in us. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure there are people sitting here before me or listening at home right now that are facing difficult things and feel alone. I pray, Father, that they would hear your word that they'd receive it, that your spirit would just drive it home within them, that they would know that you are with them, that you care. Father, they truly are not alone, and the things ahead will not surprise you. 
Father, we, we long for relief. We long for things to be better. But Father, truly, the greatest poverty really is to have to face those things by ourselves and how thankful we are that we don't have to. In your blessed name, amen.